This is part one of an episode that was recorded back in March, but has been held in post-production due to the COVID lockdown. During the editing process, we decided there was too much good stuff here to cram into a mere 30 minutes. So we've given you the full fat version and split it into two parts. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Simon Freethy, and welcome to Testing Tracks from Cyrus. On each podcast, I'll share with you some of the tracks we use to evaluate products during our development process. For whilst we can measure all sorts of performance parameters on the test bench, how the product plays music in the real world is the acid test. As well as being great pieces of music, to ensure that the enjoyment factor is still shining through, each track has a particular trait that acts as a good test on certain aspects of the system's performance. Each week I'll be joined by a special guest and each of us will pick three tracks. For rights reasons, the podcast only contains small clips of the music, but links to the tracks from all the major streaming services can be found on the info section of the podcast or on the Cyrus website. So my guest this week is David Price. David has a long and distinguished career as a hi-fi journalist. Uh, and also he's the first member of the press on this podcast. So welcome, David. Uh, thank you very much, Simon. Um, when did you first get into hi-fi journalism? Um, I think it was 1993. Um, and uh, I started as an editorial assistant at Hi-Fi World. Uh, in Maida Vale, and um, yeah, that was a baptism of fire. It was quite a, it's quite a thing, and I mean, it was amazing as well. If you think about how things have changed, we were uh, writing things on a little Mac uh, classic computer. Right. Um, we were, uh, we had people copy typing stuff in, um, and then that would go into a very basic word processor. With, I think it's Quark Express. We'd have all the photographs shot by a photographer on analog film and then biked round on a motorbike with yeah. the negatives to, to look at it. So it was a completely different period. Well, this is the days when age. magazines actually sold in reasonable numbers as yes, well. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I think, what Hi-Fi was doing, 50,000 plus a month, and Hi-Fi World was uh, maybe 20, something like that, 16,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's pre-internet. I think the internet had just been invented in 1993. Right. Um, and um, and the contributors used to post their uh, their copy in on uh, uh, floppy disks. So <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so that yeah, times have world. changed. Yeah, times basically. have changed. Times yeah. have changed. And how and and how have you sort of found that? Uh, does that have changed your approach to to writing and how you write because the way the audience is consuming the media is different? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I think you know, in terms of a. Uh, standard reviewing I think it's pretty much the same as it was yeah I think obviously you've got less faffing around you can often type notes into your Mac as you as you listen now really and uh, or into your PC or whatever um, and um, I think it's really the production side that speeded up a, a lot yeah and um, you know in the industry that's meant that uh, there's far fewer people involved so I think we had on Hi-Fi World in 93, we had sort of eight production staff or something like that. And, you know, that's that's gone down. Um, you know, any any Hi-Fi magazine will not be using that many people now by a long way. 
simply because you can you know write straight into the uh, into the uh, the desktop publishing yeah, application yeah. so yeah. but i mean the basic thing of listening and reviewing hasn't really changed uh, maybe the music has maybe the a lot of people now use um you know stream music digital yeah. as a source uh, i still use quite a lot of vinyl actually for my sins um you know, it, it's. I think it depends on the on the different reviewers, really. So all, we're, we are going to be using streaming today. So I think I've got all the tracks lined up on Cobus as our yep. source through yep. through a Syrah streamer. So Excellent. if you yep. listen to them on vinyl, you might be able to pick up a few. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I use Cobus a lot, actually. Yeah. And they, they um, you know, they interestingly do quite a lot of high res now, don't yes, they? Yes, yeah, uh, Which are, is great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, it's again, it's very interesting vinyl then you've got high-end cd transport with high-end dac and now you've got streamed stuff going into DACs. um the sources have changed but um actually a, i think a great system in 1993 would still sound great now yes i think but it's got easier to to give good sound quality i think for a relatively low price and the convenience has gone up as well yeah yeah Okay, great. Now, this this is going to be quite an interesting session for me because um, whilst we sort of have a very similar goal when we're listening to tracks, actually it's subtly quite different because we're sitting here listening to tracks trying to ensure that the products perform at their best and actually you're listening to the tracks for actually listening to where the products are deficient in some, in, in most places. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true to an extent. Um, I mean, I've got a, a sort of um, dual pronged um, approach to this. So, in in some senses, you want to, as a reviewer, you want to chuck stuff at a piece of equipment yeah. um, that you think will give it a hard time. Yeah. And um, so, I've got all sorts of uh, you know things in my sort of uh, proverbial locker room, as it were, of review tracks uh, to do that. Um, and but also in in another way you want to put stuff on that you like that basically just should sound nice because you've heard it sound nice yeah so I think you can do it you can do it both ways and you should do it both ways and I think you're absolutely right to say that what you shouldn't be doing is just putting your three favorite songs on going yeah. oh that sounds good yeah. you know uh, <laughs> you know and sort of bash it into the into the uh, keyboard and uh, and then that's it, you know. Um, so definitely reviewers should have uh, painful, demanding testing tracks. I yes. think that's absolutely right. Okay, yeah. and you brought three of those with you today. I have, yeah. Now, in yeah. your emails as we were leading up to this, trying to arrange this this uh, session, and you mentioned that you would have found it a lot easier to bring 30 tracks than just to pick three. Is that because you've got sort of different characteristics that you're looking for and you have a number of tracks that, that test those? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, one of the first things is that you need a, a, a fairly broad um, spread of music genres. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, I love techno music. I love electronic music um, uh, amongst many other types of music. But um, if I just played you three techno tracks, yeah. um, then, you know, we wouldn't really be able to assess how something sounded in terms of its reproduction of instrumental timbre. So, you know, you couldn't hear a classical guitar play and think that sounds natural because you're just listening to a, you know, Yamaha DX7 or something or, yeah. or whatever. So, um, yes, you have to, you have, to have uh, acoustic or instrumental music. You have to have orchestral music. You have to have jazz music. 
um, and and also rock music and electronic music and you know and and it goes on. Um, so I mean, in my three tracks today, I've I've actually gone for two rock tracks uh, which are quite differently recorded. Yeah. Um, and one electronic track. Um, but you know, it was a really painful decision to, to <laughs> boil it down to three. Thanks for that. Um, it would have been easier to have five because then I'd have a classical track and a jazz track as yeah, well. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting because I've I've. Well, we'll talk about my track selection later. I okay. went, having looked at yours, I then got into my own dilemma as well. It is, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, one of my life's ambitions, but probably my, at the same time, my worst nightmare would be asked to go onto Desert Island Disc. Because <laughs> how on earth do you condense your whole musical career into, into eight songs? Um, and I think I would, you know, in that situation, I think I'd be driven by choosing tracks that I thought were good value. So I'd probably try and say, well, can I have the whole of Side 2 of Abbey Road? Because that's <laughs> one track. Exactly, yes. <laughs> we'll count that as one track. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, shall we get on with some listening? Yeah. Um, so n- normally I let my guests go first, but to change things up a bit this week, I thought I'd uh, crack on with the first one, if you don't okay. mind. Is that all right? Yeah. So uh, regular listeners to this podcast will know that Fee, good female vocal tracks are really go-tos for a lot of our, our tuning sessions. And uh, I've picked an Annie Lennox track here because she has she is an amazing vocalist and she has an amazing range of styles within that within that vocal as well. So this track is uh, The Thin Line Between Love and Hate, which is from her Medusa album. Uh, and there are a few bits that I quite like above just the vocal that makes this track quite interesting it starts with this really driving bass line which permeates the whole track so that's a good sort of test of how well the system is coping with some of those lower dynamics i mean it needs to be sort of tuneful and precise and if the system's not really up to it it can sound a bit a bit muddy um there's some nice vocal harmony it, it that sits in the background so when the track opens it kind of sits with this sort of background uh, vocal and then the lead vocal comes in and that to me that sits very clearly forward of the of the back of uh, the background vocal and that central vocal is also full of a emotional meaning it's a it's a soft and low and yet it's um threatening at the same time I mean, if you listen to the lyrics of the track you'll you'll understand why you know it's a bit like you know when you know you've done something wrong at home and your wife starts telling you off and but she's doing it in a nice way but you know there's something behind it it's that kind of uh, uh, ambience that, that's coming through and then the vocal ten- tenor changes towards the end and it's much more sort of venomous the other thing I quite like about this track is not it's okay the recording it's not the best and there is a bit of sibilance on the recording so listening to a system which manages to still get over the emotional content but actually keeps that sibilance in yeah. check i think is quite a good test yeah i mean that's an interesting album actually um so i think it's mid 90s wasn't it yes yeah um and it, it's very kind of jingly jangly um sort of 90s electronic production you know digital synths and it's been it's been eq'd for quite a big punchy stand-up sound on fm radio yeah, you know yeah. as they used to do at that time um, and I, I don't, I mean, um, I, I think it's a fantastic album. It's a great album of covers, and she has a really interesting range of things she covers. I mean, everything from Neil Young to The Lover Speaks yeah, is, yeah. Is a, is a, shows you some great taste. But um, the whole album is, is quite a, a challenge for a hi-fi system, yes. so I'm interested yeah, you yeah. 
chose from that. Um, it, it's something that you have to have a smooth and detailed and clean and well-behaved low distortion uh, front end and amplifier and speakers. Yeah. Otherwise, it can just sound quite nasty, I think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. Well, let's well, get it on and you can tell me what you think of it on our yep. system that we've got here. Oh, but by the way, yes, yeah, so we're using uh, a StreamX signature into a DAC XP and a couple of Mono X 300s. Again, I think we've got the Spendor D9s in here. Um, which we are on test as a new reference set for us. I think we were, I was expecting to see some PMCs. I think they're outside. Mm. I'm not quite sure why they haven't come in yet, but um, I don't know whether you've heard, have you heard these speakers before? Um, I've heard the uh, the one one down from this. I think I reviewed it um, a while back, but yeah, very um, smooth and even sound, yeah. I think. Um, quite a sort of nicely finessed treble. Um, uh, not the world's sort of ballsiest sort no, of No, very, very speaker. flat, I yeah, think, these are, yeah. which is why we've got them in here. Yeah. We tend to be sort of picking yeah. stuff that we know yeah. what, that, that are trans as transparent as possible. Absolutely. Cool. Right. Let's um, put on Annie Lennox. So David, you you quite rightly pointed out that's not a not an easy album mm. to reproduce. What did you think of it on on this particular setup we've got here? I think it, it handled it really well, actually. Um, so I'm still on the sofa rather than hiding behind <laughs> it. Um, and uh, I, I did manage to hear your last question as well. So um, I haven't got any kind of ringing in my mm. ears. But I mean, it's a very sort of 90s tastic rock pop recording. Yeah. It's heavily compressed, very close mics as well, her yeah. vocal. Um, and it, you get the impression that it's almost like, you know, even with speakers, like you've got headphones and she's sort of shouting into your yeah. into your ears. Um, and then you've got that lovely cheesy 90s sub bass going blum, blum, blum. Um, and um, a very sort of shiny uh, sort of tonality to it. It's all sort of bright and white and... Um, it, it's very different to the to the track that I'm going to be introducing yes, in a minute. Absolutely. Um, but um, it's actually a great album for for reviewers. This one, um, not, not just because it's got some great covers, and um, I, I actually use um, "Don't Let It Bring You Down." Yeah. Uh, the the, uh, the Neil Young uh, one, but it's um, it's a really challenging uh, album, and you can you can easily find yourself running away or running for the volume control to turn it down yeah. so the fact that we we got through it um and and enjoyed it and i was just listening to the different parts of production yeah. and and her vocals and her breathing and her phrasing and stuff um and just enjoying the song rather than thinking you know i've got tinnitus now which, which so. is what it's all about yeah. isn't it yeah. i mean it's interesting because obviously especially now with modern recording techniques, it's it's relatively easy to get hold of some fantastically recorded mm. material. Yeah. But the problem for us as a manufacturer is if you just develop and tune your kit yeah. with only that beautifully clean, fantastically yeah. recorded stuff, yep. you know, and a lot of music that's out there, yeah. it, 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 could not, it could fail. So we deliberately throw in these things that 
aren't necessarily the best recorded mm. um, but we know what the challenges are and we make sure that the the system can cope with it absolutely yeah no it's good a, well i'm glad you enjoy, mm. i'm glad you um um, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I did. Yeah. <laughs> so that was great. So uh, let's move on to your first track, David. So what have you got for us? So I've got Country Girl by um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Um, and uh, it's basically a Neil Young song with uh, with uh, the rest of the guys kind of, uh, you know, playing uh, backing and doing their harmonies. Um, and it came out um, in, I think it was recorded in late 69, um, came out in... Uh, I think it was pretty much this time, uh, mid-March in 1970. Yeah. Um, actually, to me, it still sounds very much like a late 60s album. Um, so you were beginning to get a much bigger, tighter, punchier, kind of more rocky sound coming out of certain other, uh, you know, think of um, Bowie of that period. Yeah. Um, then, uh, you know, this sounds quite dated compared to what's It's got that very sort of soft-edged yeah, feel to it. Yeah, it has, definitely. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, especially I'm, I've just been uh, sort of uh, comparing it actually earlier on to, to, the, uh, to the next track. It certainly does sound of the 60s rather than the 70s. Uh, it's a live take, effectively, um, as far as I can tell, with the backing vocals overlaid later on. Um, and that's one of the reasons I, I like it, because uh, it's, got a, it's got a sort of, um, it's got a kind of lilting sound and a kind of sultry kind of brooding atmosphere um and it, it doesn't feel like it's been painstakingly pieced together by a producer uh it, it's almost like a kind of bunch of guys jamming together um and um so it's it's very much in contrast to the last track that i'll be uh, announcing a bit later on um in that for, for me it, it gets me into a sort of a certain mood a certain feeling and actually dis uh, this is actually the main thing about it if it if if i'm listening to it on a system and i don't get kind of transported yeah, away yeah, to this yeah. special place yeah then that's what tells me the system isn't doing something right yeah so the interesting thing is that it's it's quite a lo-fi recording it's not it's it's a million miles away from nora jones and all that sort of stuff you see at hi-fi shows um it really isn't anything to write home about technically uh it's it's sort of quite foggy and and sort of fuzzy and um it doesn't really have any kind of audiophile credentials at all but it just has a vibe and if the hi-fi system doesn't get you into the vibe it's not working you know yeah. because i've heard this on 300 pound secondhand systems with a nicely set up cheap record player you know a cheap old amp and a cheap pair of speakers that have been you know positioned in the right place and it's got me into the vibe um, and I've heard it on 10,000 pounds uh, 100,000 pound systems and it's left me cold yeah so it, it, it's very um, I think the timing is a is a an important characteristic here you have to get uh, the system has to resolve the timing really really well to just kind of pull you into this kind of uh, feel so um, yeah yeah, and we've talked in the past on this podcast about the use of live recordings yeah. uh, and recordings which have been effectively done in one session and, you know, being able to hear where the people are and the instruments yeah. and, you know, hear the room, uh, so to speak, or hear the studio. Yeah. And I think this uh, track, again, enables you to, to, to get that sense. Absolutely, yeah. So, so let's put it on and we'll see what we think. 
So yeah, David, that was a track actually that I hadn't uh, listened to in anger at all actually before you you sent it through as one of your lists. So that was an interesting experience for me, and I I absolutely get all the things that you were kind of saying about it. I mean, it's very much a you know there are lots of instruments playing at the same time there um, i think the, it's a sort of uh, almost cacophonous in its in, it is, in yeah. its complexity yeah uh, and yet because they're all playing their live effectively at the same stage you do have this wonderful sense of timing and rhythm and, mm. and and togetherness yeah and yet the system is a good system is resolving all of those different layers and instruments know, especially the backing vocal i really like yeah. that uh, you know, where the backing vocals come in and you can hear the different timbres of the of the vocalists quite yep. clearly whilst they're all beautifully in time and beautifully in harmony yep. you are still managing to pick out the the different vocals which is which is great i really like that track yeah i mean it's it's a beautiful track um uh, musically but from from a hi-fi point of view um it's really useful it's it's you know so many hi-fi systems i i hear when they're demonstrated to me by manufacturers, uh, they put on the most hi-fi sounding record possible or, you know, track. And um, okay, you know, it's a, look at the soundstage, it's really big and the bass is doing this. And But in a sense, you, you, you want sort of, um, you know, so-called kind of suboptimal source material to really uh, f test the metal of, of a hi-fi system. And just putting on a good sounding track because it's good sounding track isn't, going to help you too much in finding out about it but um, I think that um, what's really important to me is that the the hi-fi system has to connect with me emotionally and if I can play that track on a hi-fi system and I'm sort of looking at my watch and checking my email on my iPhone <laughs> then, then there's something wrong the with it. The secret of know. a reviewer is yeah, all coming out. Exactly <laughs> and, and it, you know it doesn't matter about uh, the, the, uh, the the fact that it's it's not a great in technically technical terms, a, a great recording. It's just got to it's got to hit you and sweep you away to that sort of dreamy world of stars sitting in bars, you know, in L.A. where Neil Young's sort of eyeing up the waitress and stuff. Um, and and if it doesn't do that, then you might as well just go home, basically. Yeah, yeah. And and it, this shocking thing is, I've heard a lot of systems at, at well over a hundred thousand pounds that don't do it. Mm. You know, so um, I, I, don't, I don't know how they managed. I mean, maybe they sound great with, you know, the world's greatest super recording of this or that. But, yeah. you know, so actually having a, 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 a suboptimal, not very well recorded track uh, that you love, uh, that talks to you emotionally, is a really great review tool, yeah. I think. Yeah, great. No, I really enjoyed that. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that, for that David. Um, so, yeah, moving on, my second track uh is now you were mentioning um before whether you wanted to you know wanted classical and jazz uh and I, and um i did have a couple of classical pieces which i didn't select in the end but this is a jazz piece uh, and it's a fairly recent one uh it's done by a group called bad bad not good have you heard of those uh, no it sounds like a jazz group it, name it is it's jazz group <laughs> name, yeah and the track's called confessions part three i mean there are a number of things I love about this. Firstly, I think what a great name for a band, you know. <laughs> uh, and and it's a pretty simple piece. It, it's that it's uh, drums and bass and two saxophones. Yeah. Uh, but and there's some amazing saxophone playing on here. You know, one of the sax parts is is very complex, 
and the other is and technically difficult and the other is very soulful and melodic and a big test for me of the system is how well you are you know these two two melodies are happening exactly at the same time and they're very very different and how well the system can can, can convey both of those melodies without you know confusing them and and, and getting cross talk so yeah. to speak in them uh and the other thing i like is the the sax the complex piece starts off with this kind of our, our Peggio type riff which is quite captivating and then two thirds of the way through the track you suddenly realise that he's now actually doing the same thing but in double time and somehow you haven't really noticed how he's got from from A to B so listen out for that bit and see if you can yep. spot the transition <laughs> So, David, what do you think of bad, bad, not good? Um, was it bad I or think, was it good? I think good, good, good not bad. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was um, interesting. I mean, firstly, it's a, uh, uh, it's a modern recording, I think. It's 2018, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it's a wide range, full width, full range uh, recording that's very clean, very modern in, in a good way. It's not compressed, um, although it's been quite close mic, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Um, you know, amazing musicianship, um, and uh, it's quite heavily rhythm-based, and it absolutely demands that the system is absolutely on the money in terms of timing. Um, you've got the bass guitar and, and bass drum absolutely yeah, coming. They're almost glued together, they aren't, are, they? aren't they? It's yes. incredible, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and that's, that takes some doing yeah. as someone who once played bass guitar many <laughs> years ago. Um, and um, yeah, beautiful sax sounds as well. It, it, the saxophone is a wonderfully difficult instrument for hi-fis to yes. reproduce well, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and, it uh, is. So I think Kate Bush's vocals and a saxophone are uh, about Team. the hardest it gets. Uh, you know, for a lot of a lot of small speakers, I've heard because uh, it's just when they cross over from the mid bass to the treble and you yep. know, to when two ways uh, uh, start to fall to bits uh, uh, w with with saxophones and. I think there's um, I can't remember which which track it is Supertramp's Child Division or something. There's a on Breakfast in America. You know, it's quite bright as well, and they've got some sax work, and that can absolutely, you know, that can break glasses in your in your break break the windows in your listening room. It's so bright. Um, but this is a lovely, much more balanced sax sound. Yeah, that's recording. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, it's more natural. I think it it's because it's, yeah. it's a, a well-recorded piece. You've got that natural sounding. You you kind of know what a sax is supposed to sound like yeah. and i think with a lot of the testing tracks that we use we're always trying to find uh known reference points yeah you know, which is why we always home in on vocal yeah. because it's a known reference point or live recordings uh, but at the same time then you want a few other interesting electronic things that yeah. can really you know test the limits of, of what the system can do exactly that yeah uh, well i'm glad you i'm glad you enjoyed that because that was a bit of a wild card <laughs> uh, from me so so that's great um, now, yeah, your next track. That's the end of part one. Put the kettle on and then check out part two. <laughs>